Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Last week we were looking at verses 29 through 45, and we basically finished looking at the text, but then we were drawing some application from it. As I was sharing with you last week that when I was studying this passage, I was actually looking at some other things leading up to this, and then I began to uh, think about all the things that I had been studying and writing down. And as I was going over the beginning parts of what I would say to you, it led me back into the Gospel of Mark at verses 29 to 45. That section of Scripture gives us three specific healings that Jesus did. He healed Simon's mother-in-law in verse 30. He also healed, in verse 34, many who were ill with various diseases. He casted out many demons. And then we see also that in verses 40 down to 45, he healed a leper. And we basically asked a question and we said, based upon what we have seen here in the Gospel of Mark and even what we've seen up to this point, what is Mark communicating to his audience? What is he seeking to help his audience understand? And so I took you back to verse 1 of the Gospel of Mark. And in verse 1, we hear these words, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we basically came to the conclusion that what Mark is seeking to do here is to prove to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he demonstrates that by these three healings. These three miracles. And as we looked at that, we drew some conclusions from it as to what should be the response that we have to the Lord Jesus Christ and what this reveals about Him. Many people have different views and different opinions about Jesus, but not all of them are correct. And really the place that we need to go so that we get our understanding of who Jesus is is from the Bible. Sure, there are books written about Jesus that we can learn from, but if they're not based upon the Bible, uh, then it's going to be somewhat difficult to get what we need to get and get the understanding we need to get. But God has accommodated us very clearly on the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from Scripture that He is the Word made flesh. He is the incarnate Word, according to John chapter 1 and verse 14. We also know according to John 1.1, 1, 1, He was the Word that was with God, and he's the, He is the Word of God, and He is God. In fact, we hear verses like Hebrews 1.8 that says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. And Hebrews 1.8 is recording for us the Father speaking to the Son. And the Father says of the Son, Your throne, O God. Scripture is very clear as to the identity of Jesus. But we don't always make it that clear when we're talking to people about Jesus. In fact, many times if we get up enough courage to say something to someone and try to witness to them, we tend to find ourselves just saying, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to trust Jesus. And all that is true. But we need to go back a little further and help them to understand who Jesus is. We live in a day and a culture where people are not being brought up 
to understand what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ and what the Bible says about salvation being by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it being the gift of God. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. And last time we looked at the first one in our response, and I just want to briefly mention it to bring you up where we are. And we mentioned a little bit of the second point. But the question that I gave you came from Acts 16 and verse 31. And you don't have to turn there unless you want to, but the story is with Paul and the Philippian jailer. Paul and his companion Silas were thrown into jail. And the reason why they were thrown into jail is because there was this certain girl who had a demon, and she was being used to make money by telling fortunes. And so she was going around with Paul and Silas and saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God. Now that statement is true. They were servants of God. The problem was is that this was a demon-possessed woman going around saying this. And to keep from matters being confused, Paul turned to the Spirit and said, Come out of her. He had that gift to be able to do that, and the demon came out. And immediately, her masters saw that they had lost all opportunity, all fortunes, all the gain that they were getting from having this woman telling these fortunes. Now, there are people that set up shop everywhere doing stuff like this. You can drive on the other side of town, particularly on Beach Boulevard, and you'll find Madame Ruby, or you'll find somebody like that setting up. And usually what they have that kind of gives them away besides the sign and the mentioning of what they're doing, but they, for some reason, sell campers. And they have campers parked out in their front parking lot, and I, I don't know if they use that as a way to get you to come in there and to begin a conversation with you. But I remember a story that was told some years ago about this gentleman who came into a store, and there was a lady set up telling fortunes. And so he went up to the lady, and not to seek his fortune, but he asked her, do you know where the toilet paper is? And she says, sir, I don't work here. And she tried to blow him off, and so he asked her again, do you know where the toilet paper is? And she insisted that she didn't work there, and at which he replied, he said, how is it that you know so much about the future, but you don't know where the toilet paper is? And really what he was doing there was identifying the, the hoax of all that she was doing in trying to predict the future. Now when we come to these accounts that we're looking at, and especially the question, as I said, from Acts 16.31, while Paul and Silas are in jail, their feet are fastened in, in the stocks, and they're singing hymns, and prior to being in that situation, or prior to being locked in the stocks and thrown in the prison, they had been beaten. So they were in pain from that. But they're not sitting in the jail cell complaining, oh, we have been arrested unjustly, we have been beaten because we are Romans and they shouldn't have beaten us, how dare they do that? No, they were in the jail singing hymns to God. They were praising God. 
that really gives us some insight in how we are to respond when we go through difficult things in our life, when we're persecuted for our faith in Christ or whether we're going through something else. We need to find a means by which we can praise God because there are people watching us, there are people listening to us. And these are always witnessing opportunities. When people look at your life and they see how you respond to the difficulties of life, well, shortly after that situation of them singing hymns to God, all of a sudden an earthquake happened. All the doors to the jail cells opened up. All the chains on the prisoners fell off. And the jailer had ran in looking for everybody. And he gets a sword out, getting ready to kill himself, thinking the prisoners had escaped. And Paul calls out to him and says, Sir, do yourself no harm. We're all here. It's the response of the jailer that we want to talk about now because the Philippian jailer said this, What must I do to be saved? See, from how Paul and Silas handled themselves in that difficult situation gave him enough information that he needed to be saved. He needed Christ. And so that's the question I asked this morning. What must you do to be saved? Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your house. Now, I've heard people preach on household salvation based upon this verse along. And what they're trying to say is, is that if one person in your family gets saved, then that takes care of everybody else in your house, in your household. That's not what that verse is saying. That's a terrible interpretation. He's saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically to Him, and you will be saved. And the same is true to all those in your house. They also need to believe in the Lord Jesus, and they too, upon believing in the Lord Jesus, will be saved. And so, we want to take that question, what must I do to be saved? And the answer that begins right here in Acts 16.31 and we want to apply it to that question. And as I pointed out last time, that in order to be saved, we need to understand who the Savior is. As I said a few moments ago, sometimes we'd out there and we get the boldness to witness to somebody and we start telling them that they need to believe in the Lord Jesus, but we don't tell them who Jesus is. We just assume that they know. Now that may have been fine a generation two ago but it's not fine today because there are so many that are growing up without any influence of church in their life, any influence of the Bible. In fact, you just heard the story I shared with you a moment ago about what's going on up there in Utah. And they're uh, trying to treat the Bible as if it's pornographic. You know, when I was uh, a school teacher... I also did some sub work, and I subbed at one of the public schools in Yuley. And I only went there one day, and I said, don't ask me to come back. Don't call me. I'm not coming back. It was horrible. The people had, the kids there had no filters. Certainly had no filters over their mouth, as they would call you anything and everything and not get in trouble for it. And I remember on one occasion that during that day, we were 
went to this room and it was full of computers and they got to get on the computers. There were no filters on the computers and they went just about anywhere they wanted. And I had the teacher's aide tell me some things that just did not sit right. And I said, you know what? I don't want to be in this situation. Yes, I would like to be a witness in this situation, but public schools are very uh, death on you trying to share your faith, trying to share the gospel. So I just told him, don't ask me to come back. I don't have a desire to come back and worry about someone putting something in my, my drink as to something that would harm me. But all of that was just just really helping me to understand is that, you know, we, we can't rely on like it was before where parents would bring their kids to church or raise them in church. I mean... I know my parents brought me to church, and after a period of time, and probably tired of me fighting them on it, that they stopped, and in some cases, I kind of wish that they didn't. I wish that they'd still insisted, but you know, when you're getting older, and you're getting taller, and you're taller than your parents, and you're bigger than your parents, and you know, you talk back, and you have a filthy mouth, in fact, if you were living in the days of the Old Testament, and you did things like that, they would put you to death for it because you couldn't slander your parents, you couldn't speak against them, and you couldn't even harm them in any way. And what do we have going on now? And so we can't, we can't count on that anymore. There are a lot of kids that don't know anything about church. When I was a teacher in a Christian school, my understanding was was about 98 to 99 percent of those kids were lost. And after spending six years there, my, my conclusion was I'm in agreement with that. When I became a principal at the same school, just a different campus, I saw it even more. So again, we can't count on the fact that they have some kind of church background. We have to go from the understanding that they know nothing about Christ. And again, we shouldn't assume anyway. So before you can ask someone or share with someone the answer to what must I do to be saved, yes, you need to talk about why they need to be saved, but before you can even talk about that, you need to explain to them who the Savior is. And I want to add a verse here that we didn't discuss last week, so you can turn there. It's 1 John Chapter 5 and verse 1. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the one who give, or who loves the one who gives new birth loves also the one who has been born of him. I forgot that this is one of those verses that's kind of scrambled. And if you have the King James Bible, it's even more scrambled than that. But let me just point out a couple things here. He says, everyone who believes. That participle there is used in the present tense in Greek. And what that means is it's continual. Everyone who continues to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is Christos in Greek. It means the anointed one, but the Hebrew equivalent is Mashiach. What does that sound like? Messiah. So everyone who continues to believe that Jesus is the Messiah 
has been born of God. And now he's using a different tense for born of God. It is the perfect tense. The perfect tense speaks of something happening in the past and something completed in the past, but it still is going on today. So in other words, if you were born again, in my case, 39 years ago, then you're still born again now. And not only that, if you're born again, you will continue to believe. As the years continue to get longer and longer in your walk with Christ, you will continue to believe because you have been born of God at that particular point in your life and it's still having an impact on your life now. The second thing he says as an indicator of someone being a believer in Christ is that he loves the one who gives this new birth and he also loves the one who's been born of God. So you love God and you also love those who have been born of God, other believers. This is profound. But this is what we see all over the, the Bible. And what we said in Acts 16.31, going back to that for just a moment, is that the answer that Paul gave to the Philippian jailer was, number one, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, who is he according to Mark's gospel that we pointed out last week and what I read to you this morning? He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Who is he according to John 1.1? 1, 1? He is God. Who is he according to John 1.14? He is the Word that has become flesh. This is the Word that took on a body. So Mark tells us, He is the Son of God. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ... You're getting the identification of who He is. First of all, in that verse, He is the Lord Jesus Christ. But you're also getting the understanding in Mark, as Mark starts out his gospel, that He is the Son of God. And again, why is Mark doing this? Because he's trying to help us understand. He's trying to help his audience understand who Jesus is. And as he writes, as he listens to the testimony of Peter as he's jotting these things down and he's moving from one story to another story to another story, all of these stories are indicating to us the same truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that is Mark's point with the 16 chapters that he gives to us. So to be saved, you must first of all know who the Savior is. And as I said, his healing pointed all of that out that He is the Son of God. But if you'll notice also too, it says that He is the Lord. He is the Lord Jesus. Lord is the Greek word kurios. It means master, sovereign master. Jesus was a very common name during that time. And to have the word Christ added to that, Christ was not a last name, Christ was a title. Again, Messiah, anointed one. And to call him Lord Jesus, this is indicating 
that he is more than just a commoner, more than just a man. He is the Lord. He is the creator God. He is the one who, according to Philippians 2, 9 and following, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in order to be saved, you have to believe in Him. He's the one you need to believe in. He's the one you put all your faith, all your trust in. And so you must believe, again, what Scripture says about Him. You also must believe that He is who He claimed to be. Now last week I mentioned to you what the word believe means, and it's more than just some intellectual assent to the Savior. It's more than just mental. This is a term that is speaking of persuasion. It is a, a term that speaks of being fully assured and fully convinced of who Jesus is. It's a term that speaks of commitment because we see in John chapter 2 that this word speaks of this understanding of committing your life to Him. Over in John chapter 2, when Jesus was there doing the miracles, people were attaching themselves to Him because of the miracles. But we're told in John 2 that He didn't believe in them. He didn't attach Himself to them. Listen to what it says, John 2.23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting or committing himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew everything about them. He knew why they came. He knew the motives by which they were attaching themselves to him. But he did not commit himself to them. They came for the wrong reasons. He didn't commit himself to them. And that gives us really some insight. Because now when we're telling people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what are we telling them to do? Well, we'll take the word that's used in verse 24 and translated entrusting or commit. That's what we're telling people to do. We're telling them to commit their life to Jesus Christ. We're telling them to surrender their life to Jesus Christ. Notice the second thing that Paul said to the Philippian jailer. Not only did he say believe, but he said believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And we take some other verses that we can work with this and we understand that once you do believe, then you confess. And the idea of confessing means to say the same thing. And this was something we were pointing out last time as well. When you confess Jesus is Lord, you are saying the same thing that the Bible says about Jesus, that He is Lord. You are in agreement with that. It's not that you're committing yourself to Jesus so that He can become your personal Lord, your personal Savior. You won't find that terminology anywhere in the Bible. But what you do find, that when you commit your life to Him and you confess Him and you are agreeing with what Scripture says, that He is Lord. 
He is Lord. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 tells us that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we confess Him as Lord. We're agreeing with what the Bible says about Him that He is Lord. Matthew 10, 32 says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So you're confessing Jesus, you're agreeing with Scripture that He is Lord, and you're telling everybody else about it too. And essentially, that's what was going on when people were baptized. They were confessing Jesus as Lord. They were confessing and repenting of their sins. Uh, This was not some silent thing going on like you see sometimes in churches where a person is being baptized, they don't say anything, the preacher says everything, and then all of a sudden takes them under the water and brings them back up, and we're done. In Matthew chapter 3, at the baptism of John the Baptist, it says that they all came confessing their sins. So as they're confessing their sins, he's baptizing them. So the first two is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, And confess Him as Lord. What must I do to be saved? Believe what the Bible says about Jesus. Confess Him as Lord. You're confessing in agreement that He is Lord. Number three, repent. Repent. Repent of your sin. We hear Jesus Himself when He began His ministry in Mark 1.15 say essentially those words. He says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. means it's right there before you. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe are commands in that verse. He's commanding them to turn from their sin and to embrace the truth of the gospel, which is the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Messiah, who is the Anointed One, who has come to take away our sins. So the command of the gospel is to repent. And we know it's a command even in other places. In fact, if if you want to just hold your place, go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And let me show you another place where we understand this. It says in... Verse 6, it says it's, After all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give you relief who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and get this, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, if people are not obeying the gospel, maybe we're not presenting it in such a way to tell them to obey it, or presenting it as an imperative. Instead, what occurs sometimes is that we kind of throw it out there as, you know, it'd be nice if you do this, because if you do this, all these things are going to happen. And we put it out there it's almost as if, you know, it's not urgent. It's not something that you must do right now. But we need to change that. We need to change that. They, as well as us, are called to the same thing. 
John Calvin said, unbelief ends up making us rebels and deserters. And we can't stay in that state of unbelief and go into heaven. We have to repent. We have to turn from our unbelief. We have to turn from our wickedness. And we have to embrace Christ. And repentance is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. This is something that we live in all the time. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, after the crowd said to him, what must we do? Peter said, repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he tells them the same thing. What must you do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe, confess. What does Peter say? He throws us in the third component, repent. God calls you to repent. And when you look back on your life as a child of God now, and you think, well, God certainly didn't deal with me according to my sin. I mean, you think of Acts 17.30, it says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... We've had times of ignorance, haven't we? Before we were saved, we were ignorant of the gospel. We are ignorant of the things of God. But he says, God is now commanding men everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. So as I said, we have to repent of, first of all, of our unbelief. I mean, because that's really where we are before we embrace Christ, before the new birth, before being born again, is that we're in a state of unbelief. And only God can move us out of that state. The Bible speaks of before coming to Christ, being dead in trespasses and sins, and if you're dead in trespasses and sins, it's going to be very difficult for you to do anything about that. Dead people can't do anything about their condition. They're dead. They can't bring life back to themselves. They can't rise up out of that casket. Uh, They're dead. There is no more life there. And that is what we are before Christ. That's what every unbeliever is. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They have an inability to respond unless God opens their hearts. But what are we repenting of? As I said, we're repenting of unbelief. Over in John 16... Verse 7, Jesus said, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, and if I do not go away, the Advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment of sin, he says, because they do not believe in me. So that's unbelief. So the Holy Spirit would convict the world of unbelief. He would also convict the world of righteousness. Jesus says, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. The perfect picture of righteousness was Christ. And then third, he would convict them of judgment. Because the ruler of this world has been judged, we see there that God is serious about unbelief. He's serious about sin, that he will judge these things. He will judge these persons who refuse to repent. 
And again, this is the third element that the Holy Spirit will convict of. So when you're repenting, you're, you're repenting of your sin of unbelief. And as I said, this is something that we continue to do. We continue to repent of our sin. We continue to repent of those moments when we doubt the Lord. You know, when I think of this, I think about in Mark 9, Jesus had healed a man's son. And we're told in Mark 9 that the father had cried out, saying that he believed And then he said this, Help my unbelief. Believing is being fully assured, being fully convinced of who the Savior is. And you're confessing Him. You're turning from your unbelief. You're turning from your unrighteousness. You're repenting of your idolatry. Like Exodus 20 and verse 3 says about having no other gods before Him. You're repenting of breaking His commandments. James says that the one who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. So in other words, if you want to be one who lives by the law of God, you break one commandment, you broke them all. And we broke all of them, haven't we? Every person who's ever lived has broken every one of the commandments. And we're told in Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed is he who does not conform... The words of this law by doing them and all the people will say amen. So when you're repenting, you're turning from your unbelief, you're turning from your sin, you're fleeing from the wrath that is to come, and you're embracing Christ. It says over in John 3.36 that he who believes in the Son has eternal life, But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, that verse right there describes every person in the world without Christ. Every person without Christ is living under the condemnation of God, living under the wrath of God. And this wrath, as he says, the wrath to come... This wrath will be realized on each individual who doesn't trust Christ. But once you do come to Christ, you know what's removed? The wrath. The condemnation. It says in Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Or John 3.18, he who believes in Him is not judged. But if you do not believe, John 3.18 says, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Judged already. That means the verdict has already been given. What's left to take place is the sentencing, carrying out the punishment. And that's why when you get to Luke 16, and in Luke 16 we have this parable that Jesus gives of a rich man and a poor man. We're given the name of the poor man. His name is Lazarus, but it's, it's a different 
Lazarus than the one that we know in John 11. It's not the same person. Again, another common name. But we're told in Luke 16, and in fact, if you would just turn there, I would like to read some of this to you. It says in verse 19 that there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. And the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham afar away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cries out and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you may send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. See the issue? But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Moses and the prophets is having the word of God right there. You and I have actually more than Moses and the prophets. We have a completed canon, both Old and New Testament. We have the full understanding of Scripture because we have all of Scripture. But the point I want to make is, is that when it talks about the rich man, the rich man, it says in verse 23, in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. It's almost as if to say he's shocked. He's shocked that Lazarus is where he is, and he's shocked that he's where he is. It's the same thing that we read in Matthew 7.21, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord... Lord, and this is really a statement of surprise. It is a statement of shock. They're shocked at where they are because they thought that they were saved. They thought that they were Christians. And they even say, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I mean, weren't we doing all these things in your name? Weren't we doing this for you? This is why I say that there are a lot of people that go to church that are lost. I mean, I'm thankful that they're in church so they can hear the gospel, but they've hardened their hearts to the gospel. They probably even say every time the preacher begins to get on the subject of the gospel, well, I've heard that, and they tune him out. I've heard that before. 
No need to hear it again. Why do you keep saying it over and over? I'm okay. I remember that day when I trusted Christ. I signed a card. Uh, I got it right down here in my zipper Bible, and I know when that took place. But their life hasn't been transformed. They still live the life that they lived before the so-called trust in Christ. I take you back to 1 John 5. Do you remember what I said about the tenses that are used there? That everyone who continues to believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah has been born of God. If you've been born of God at that point in time in your life, it's still effective today. You still believe today. You don't just believe one time, get saved, and then that's it. The same is true about repenting. You don't just repent one time and then that's it. Or just confess one time and that's it. This is ongoing in your life. You constantly believe. You constantly confess. You constantly repent. So what must you do to be saved? Well, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus. You need to confess Him as Lord. You need to repent of your unbelief, repent of your sin. And the next, you need to call on Jesus. Call on Him. You call upon Him to save you. John Calvin said, since no man is excluded from calling upon God, the gate of salvation is set open to all. There is nothing else to hinder us from entering but our own unbelief. People that don't call upon Jesus to save them is because they don't believe. They don't believe. But that's what Romans 10.13 says. And what Romans 10.9 had already stated gives us the whole heart of the matter that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then it says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So, beloved, we need to make sure that when we are preaching the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, that we tell people who Jesus is before we start talking about what they need to do. Because we don't want them trusting a false Christ. They already have a God after their own making in their heart that they have been serving up to this point. We don't want to add another one to it. We want them to abandon everything and come to Christ. Luke 9.23, they have to abandon themselves. They have to take up their cross and they have to follow Him. And again, you're calling upon the name of the Lord. Again, it goes back to verse 9. Who are you confessing as Lord? You're confessing Jesus. 
You're saying Jesus is Lord. You're saying Jesus is God. And if you never call on Him to have mercy on your soul and save you, you'll never be saved. If you never ask God to save you, you will never be saved. But again, what's your motive? What is your motive for coming to Him? Jesus tells another parable in Luke 18. We're told in Luke 18, 9, He told this parable because there were people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they looked at others with contempt. And here's the parable He gives. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You see what he's doing as he's calling upon the Lord? What's he admitting? He's admitting that he is a sinner. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. See, the first guy wouldn't admit that. All he was doing was looking at others. And he was comparing himself to others. And listen, you don't want to compare yourself to other people. You know who you need to compare yourself to? God. I mean, you're told in Matthew 5.48 to be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So he's the one we compare ourselves to. But this Pharisee wasn't doing that. God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And I'm not even like this tax collector, this outcast. But again, that outcast, it says he was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. And he was beating his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Here's the conclusion, verse 14. I tell you this, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Which man was justified? Which man got saved? Was it the Pharisee or the tax collector? He was willing to humble himself. So, beloved, when you come to Christ, when you are confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are two things here. One is from the part of the person giving the gospel out. We have to make sure that we're talking about who the Savior is, who we are calling people to come to. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And again, we have to identify who Jesus is. And it's not hard to do. Because the Scripture is filled with information of titles and the names that are given to Jesus that indicate who He is. And also... They're given to us examples of how people responded to him and what they said. Do you remember when Thomas 
People called him Doubting Thomas, but when Jesus appeared to him, and what was Thomas's response when he saw Jesus? He said, My Lord and my God. See, he identified two truths about Jesus that tell us who Jesus is. He is Lord. He is God. That's where we have to start. He is Lord and He is God. And because He's Lord and because He is God, then He demands a response from us. And again, that's where confession and repentance comes in. That's where believing comes in. But again, I remind you that the problem that you and I have, the problem I had 39 years ago, was the same problem people have today too. It's getting past yourself. It's getting past the unbelief. And that's why I believe that salvation is a sovereign work of God. It says over in John 1.12, But in, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right or authority to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. See, it's not based upon your family relationships. It's not based upon your desires. But it's based upon God and His work in you. In fact, sometimes we, we take all of this and we sum it up another way. And we say this, uh, Do you love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Where's your love at? What's the object of your love? Is it continuing to be yourself? And self is usually number one right there. Even though you may list other things or demonstrate other things, but all those other things are because of self. Maybe put it in your spouse. Maybe put it in your children. Maybe put it in your possessions. Those are things that you care about. Those are things that you love more. But the Bible tells us, and there's two places where it says this, Deuteronomy 6, 5, You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus repeated that in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he says, This is the great and foremost commandment. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. And this is why I mentioned this, because this, in essence, is our response. The same as believing, the same as confessing, the same as repenting, the same as calling upon Him. Because we have in Matthew 10.37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. 
So what is he saying in all that? God has to be first. There's no compromise here. Your allegiance is to God. Not to yourself, not to your family. Again, if you love your father or mother more than him, you can't be saved. If you love your son or daughter more than him, you can't be saved. If you're not willing to take your cross... And that cross is a reference to an instrument of death. If you're not willing to die for me, if you're not willing to follow me, you can't be saved. And that's why he ends it with saying, He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So there's an exchange that occurs. You're exchanging your life for Christ. R.C. Sproul says that he concluded that if the great commandment was to love God with all the heart, then the great transgression was to fail to love God with all the heart. Is this your response? Now, last week when we shared the Lord's Supper, and I say right before we partake of it, to examine yourself, see whether you be in the faith. Make sure that you are a believer in Christ. Make sure you are a Christian before you take of this table, the bread and the cup. But, you know, I have to ask the same question or make the same statement regardless whether we're doing the Lord's Supper or not because the response from the Word of God is, is that we should say the same thing. Are you a child of God? Have you truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you confessed Him as Lord? Have you repented of your unbelief and repented of your sin? Have you called upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save you? Do you love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, going back to Mark, Mark is going to give us a lot more information as he records healings and Jesus casting out demons and so forth. He's going to give us more and more things that will just continue to pile on the evidence to prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you need to repent and give your life to Him. C.S. Lewis made this statement. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. That's the one thing He says we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic. And he said he'd be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. He says you have to make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. What's your conclusion? Don't miss what Mark has been saying in his gospel. Don't get caught up in the miracle and miss the Savior 
the one who performed the miracle, and what the miracle is saying about him. Because they all point to who he is. Father, we want to thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to go through these things. And my prayer is is that every person will think about what I have just shared with them. And Lord, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ if they've never believed. That they would confess Jesus as Lord. That they would repent of their sin. That they would call upon Jesus to save them. And that they would love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Again, Lord, we remind ourselves that your scripture tells us that we can't do any of this on our own, that we need your help in doing it. So I would pray that you would open up every person's heart in here today, just as you did in Philippi when you opened up Lydia's heart to believe the things that Paul was telling them. We thank you for the time that we've had together today. And we just give your precious name all the praise that's so due to it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.